You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices that shape our lives. I'm today's guest host, Jane Ferguson. And I'm Richard Dearlove former Chief of British Intelligence, otherwise known as MI6. We look at the key strategic choices and decisions that have global impact. We hear from the key decision makers, players and experts, how they arrive at the choices they face and how they impact us all. Well, today we have Dr. Fiona Hill in. I couldn't be more excited. I don't know of anyone who knows more about Putin himself, Russian history, his past and potentially where, where this might all be headed. Yeah, I think it's very exciting. Perfect guest at a perfect time when really we have to look closely at Russia and analyse, and there couldn't be a better person to do it with. Especially someone who's been in three administrations already, uh, one that may return. She also straddles not just the expertise and academic world, but the navigating the political world that, that's going to be so key in the future. Yes, absolutely, because the political dimension in Washington, as we'll discuss, is so important at the moment. Fiona, I started working on Soviet Union, stroke Russia, but let's call it the Soviet Union, in the 60s, right. when I started my career. And, you know, I eventually did spend time behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. And it, the ideological divide was so fundamental, it actually seemed to those of us who were in the Cold War front line that that divide was completely unbridgeable. I mean, there was a sort of juxtaposition which was so absolute and, and so separate. And the moment, you know, you crossed the Iron Curtain and went into a country like Czechoslovakia or into Poland, the, the atmosphere between East and West was absolutely fundamentally different. I was going to say that's obviously right. And I think it's also one of the reasons why things went awry um, over the time of the 1990s and into the 2000s, because we had an assumption on our part that once the ideological uh, divide was bridged or broken in some way with the disappearance of uh, the, the Soviet system, the Communist Party, central planning, etc., that we might uh, be able to put on another footing. And I think, you know, what we can see, certainly since Putin came back, and this is where leadership matters, and I think you might, you know, agree with that and have some observations of your own, you know, given your time um, in the Soviet Union, also in your time in post-Soviet Russia, that Putin has gone back to those historical patterns of those historical divisions and separation out from certainly the United Kingdom and uh, and Europe, Western Europe, uh, but also the United States. So the ideology, in a way, masked some of these kind of deeper tensions. And we perhaps, you know, made a mistake in the 1980s, it wasn't apparent because the Soviet Union was still there and was reforming. But later into the 2000s, what Putin comes in and thinking that we'd seen some, you know, real shift, strategic shift in terms of Russia once communism and uh, the Soviet system had disappeared. Just let me tell you an anecdote which will amuse you, because I think this cultural issue and, you know, the separation historically, of, let's say the two cultures, when I, the first time I went to Moscow, after the end of the Cold War, there was a huge banquet given in my honour. Where was it held? And, you know, obviously KGB officers in attendance and other senior people from the national security sort of apparatus. It was in the Danilov Monastery. Oh, my goodness, yeah. So, you know, which is the home of Russian Orthodoxy. So, in a way, there was a clue there already to the fact that, you know, this image of Russia 
which was profound and deep and historic, was going to be projected. But, you know, we didn't interpret that correctly at the time. And that's also very interesting that you mentioned that, because if you were out there in your MI6 role, and of course, the people who were hosting you were your counterparts, and people like Vladimir Putin, the cohort around him, you know, were often very critical about the Soviet state jettisoning the Orthodox Church. They said that the, you know, the the the, uh, the new system had missed a beat. Uh, in other words, that the Orthodox Church was an instrument of state power and shouldn't have been rejected, and it would have been useful, you know, in kind of building up uh, the integrity of the state and also, presumably, you know, for their own intelligence uh, purposes. As, of course, turned out over time to be the case, Putin has forged a very close relationship uh, with the current patriarch, uh, Kirill, and also in the past, many of uh, the top leadership of the Orthodox Church, even in the period when ostensibly the Soviet system was secular, uh, became part of that larger intelligence um, apparatus, certainly many of the people at the top. And there seemed to be um, a pretty now close affinity between the Kremlin and the church, obviously in the war in Ukraine and elsewhere, that mirrors in some respects the imperial linkages between the Tsars and the Romanov and other dynasties in the church, but it's very much uh, become this sort of fusion of church and state. I wonder if it would be possible then just sort of jumping off of that, looking more more closely right now at the war in Ukraine. I know that you've been pretty outspoken lately, of course, about What's at stake? I mean, essentially, what we have today is is very different from what we had a year ago. Different from what we had in uh, in February 2022. There's so many eyes right now on whether or not there'll be uh, the possibility of getting the approval for the funding uh, from Washington D.C. Could you just talk to us a little bit about what's essentially at stake if this doesn't get over the line, and whether or not? other EU states, Japan, whether others uh, such as Great Britain can ever fill the void? Yes, I mean, we really are in a very difficult situation because, you know, getting back to this deeper history that we've brushed the surface of here, Putin is now presenting this conflict in Ukraine now that we're, uh, as you're saying, on the eve of the second anniversary of uh, the Russian invasion as a kind of existential conflict with the West fitting a long pattern of centuries of conflict uh, between Russia, the Russian Empire and its uh, Western neighbours. And for Putin himself, you know, given the fact that we're entering into the 24th year of him in power, he's just announced himself as the candidate for the next presidential election. You know, no one's talking about his age or, you know, the, the likelihood that he'll be in office ultimately for 36 years. And in fact, that's almost the point. Because, you know, by now he's giving Stalin a run for his money in terms of uh, longevity and uh, the position of head of state. And um, if he makes it out to 2036 with another two rounds of president, he'll have been in power longer, just slightly longer than Catherine the Great. And that, again, in a, in a way also um, underscores this kind of sense of difference, this sense of opposition. Catherine the Great is one of the empresses, the emperors, uh, the czars, the czarinas that uh, Putin always points to. Of course, she was a transplanted German princess, which is also utterly fascinating, you know, given, you know, Putin's um, fascination also with Germany. But she becomes, you know, basically one of the architects of the Russian state that Putin is wanting to recreate. It's Catherine the Great that first seizes all of the territories of what's now modern Ukraine, 
that Putin is making a bid for. So that kind of message from all of this under symbolic ways and also in the sort of indirect uh, signaling is that Putin intends, and he's just said this quite recently in his annual call-in show, he intends to keep a grip of all this territory and even to expand even further in Ukraine. So the message is, unless there is pushback from the United States, from the Europeans, Putin will turn the tables on Ukraine and uh, certainly keep on going. So, you know, the bottom line is that we're at a really uh, very difficult, pivotal point. Ukraine has managed to fend the Russians off, regain territory and keep on to, you know, the territory that Russia hasn't succeeded in taking because of uh, US and European support. And if that is not forthcoming in the next uh, several months until, you know, Ukraine, you know, has any kind of hope of building up some of its own military resources and uh, its defense industry, which is going to take a heck of a lot of time. You know, I I think we're really going to see Russia set on a path uh, towards regaining the kind of dominance that Putin thinks uh, Russia deserves. He said over and over again that he wants to see a Europe in which there is a huge demand for Russia and which Russia is restored to the the previous greatness. All the talk about seeing the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, constantly talking about the Russian Empire and the Russian state. Putin's making it clear, crystal clear, over and over again in all of his statements, and we'll see even more of it in his, you know, sort of campaign. I mean, he doesn't really have to try, does he? But campaign Mm -hmm. to be uh, the president again in Russia of uh, this idea that Russia needs to dominate, not just in Eastern part of Europe, but in, in Europe overall. So we've got ourselves full circle again. So much of this war is about the perception of how well or how badly it's going. You know, on this side of the pond here in the United States, there's so much conversation about how the spring offensive, the summer offensive, whether it did or didn't achieve anything. And of course, we've seen Putin, you know, touring the Middle East, doing going to visit places like Abu Dhabi and certainly presenting himself in a certain kind of victorious body language uh, as he arrives and is received by other states. You know, how much is there a danger of perception here about what is victory? Uh, what is success in Ukraine for the Ukrainians and for Putin himself? I mean, so much is often written about his gargantuan, you know, casualty rates. How much this is costing him in diplomatic isolation and financially. But but in reality, how much is he gaining or losing here? Well, I think actually the symbolic and psychological aspects of this, just as you are pointing out, are pretty important. I think Putin already feels like he's scored several wins here, you know, winning on points, let's say, rather than in terms of uh, actual knockout blows. I mean, as you've pointed out, the Russian losses are staggering, actually, if you kind of think about both sides of the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. We're, we're approaching about half a million casualties, deaths and uh, people who are severely injured. You know, we used to think that the collapse of the Soviet Union was relatively peaceful. But of course, we you know we don't think about Chechnya, the mm. war that uh, Russia uh, waged on its own territory when the Chechens tried to secede in the 1990s. That was more than 200,000 people killed there as well, including Russian servicemen. It was a sort of nadir of, you know, kind of Russian power and uh, the, the domestic state uh, leveling of Grozny, the, the capital city of uh, Chechnya. And, uh, and you know, most of the region laid to waste before uh, a puppet government gets installed. We're seeing a kind of repetition, you know, of this in Ukraine, but this is external. I mean, Russia was already lost for itself. If we're, you know, really in the realm of uh, 300,000, even more, you know, people, 350,000, there's all these kind of uh, estimates uh, going on here, way in excess of any losses in Afghanistan when it was uh, the Soviet Union, um, of course, and, uh, you know, much larger state. I mean, this really does seem astounding, but for Putin, that's kind of discounted. 
he's factoring that in. The Russian public doesn't seem to be reacting to these losses. Obviously, he is also spreading out a lot of propaganda. This is, again, in your psychological part of the operation here, that Ukraine's losses are even more debilitating. And you, you hear this, you know, talked about all over in all kinds of uh, different circles. Even the fact that so many people have fled Russia and 1.5 million to the neighboring republics, former Soviet republics, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Belarus, you know, for example, or further afield in uh, in Europe and elsewhere. This is almost presented as a kind of also a symbolic success, the best and the brightest, because these are all the, you know, the, the flower of youth, literally, and, and also the tech entrepreneurs who are working remotely. Uh, I even hear from, you know, Kremlin-connected Russians that this is saving Russia from disaster. The best and the brightest are outside the country. They're not dying on the front, unlike Ukraine, where the best and the brightest are dying on the front. That's a so fascinating that, insight. I mean, it's sort amazing, of grim. isn't it? Because it's grim. And basically what Putin is doing, he's playing with all of this. He is giving himself these symbolic psychological wins here. And in a way, he is symbolically defeating Ukraine as we speak, even though Ukraine is actually still holding its own on the battlefield. And even on the Black Sea has literally turned the proverbial tide uh, against Russia, breaking uh, the stranglehold and seeing a lot of the Russian Black Sea fleet off to um, other ports away from Sevastopol and Crimea to Novorossiysk um, in the, on, the, on the Russian side of the Black Sea, and also to the point that the Russians have made a deal with the breakaway Republic of Abkhazia to build a new port for the Black Sea fleet there. So for Putin, it's all, this is the classic KGB operation. I'm sure Richard has quite a lot to say about this. It's propaganda, it's misinformation, it's disinformation, it's a psyops. It's all kind of messing with people's minds to defeat you in the political battlefield, even if that might not be happening on the uh, physical military battlefield. I agree with your analysis to an extent, Fiona, but isn't there something fundamentally illusory about what Putin has done in terms of his impact on Russia? I mean, I find it very, very hard to believe that within the Kremlin that there certainly aren't significant stresses and strains because the overall impact on the country of this extraordinary military venture has been you know, so profound that I'm sure, I mean, in a way, I'm not in my former position, so I'm not aware of what the cracks look like. But I would have thought that, you know, there are plenty of people sitting in CIA in my former service, probably the two most successful organizations in intelligence terms, in terms of working on Russia, stroke Soviet Russia. There isn't something fundamentally amiss. I've also been of the view that there is something wrong with Putin he may well have a health problem. Yeah. And I'm, I've had that from people who, let's say, have a pretty close to the sort of, in Russia, to knowing what's not being talked about. So I agree we're at a very difficult period and that it is essential that the West, and that's primarily the United States because only the US has that sort of huge clout, continues its support. And, uh, you know, is it possible that there's going to be a deal in Washington? I cannot believe that the Republican Party, given its record on foreign policy, is ultimately, you know, going to sacrifice Western interests overall for, you know, issues to do with the Mexican border. I, it seems to me just a staggering trade. And okay, Politics have changed significantly in the states, but you know I've been a great believer in the responsibility of Republican foreign policy, you know, since the Cold War onwards. You've said a um, you know a whole host of very important things there, Richard. I mean, on the U.S. side, 
Yes, unfortunately, we're in the midst of um, a real election campaign for the president as opposed to a pretend one on the, the, the Russian side. I mean, Putin doesn't have to face the kind of scrutiny and stresses that presidential candidates, um, and particularly Joe Biden in this case, you know, facing here in the, the United States. And everything that we see in terms of the machinations in Congress, less so in the Senate, but certainly in uh, the House of Representatives, are related to people positioning themselves for kind of what they think they might get out of the presidential campaign that will be you know, really picking up the pace uh, after January um, here. But also the southern border, just like in the United Kingdom and in, you know, in Europe in terms of often the southern border as well, is really one of great political concern and obviously a national security crisis too because you know, half the time you're not really sure who is coming over the borders. But you know, I think that there is going to have to be a larger reckoning with this. Um, I keep hoping that you know, things will work out over time and that people will you know, see the necessity on the other issue of you know the United States alone, I do actually think that it's important also for the signaling to Russia that Europe is more outspoken. And I think you know, we're starting to see some of this, you know, with the EU uh, making the commitment to Ukraine overall in terms of uh, candidacy and accession mm-hmm. negotiations really problematic with Hungary, of course, on releasing uh, funds and the EU is going to have to, you know, start to really get tough on Hungary here. I mean, if it's going to be showing itself to have any decisive ability. The UK has obviously played a very important role in uh, support for Ukraine, and that needs to continue, and it needs to be signaled to Russia, to China, to all the other you know, participants in this war, Iran and North Korea, and that they're participants in terms of their you know, support for material and military support to, to Russia, that this really matters for, for Europe as well. And it also matters to the back signaling to members of Congress in the US that Europeans are standing up militarily and financially, because there is still a belief here despite all of the evidence and the constant reports of significant European support writ large, and also from Japan, South Korea, you know, Canada and elsewhere, New Zealand, Australia, that it's only the United States is doing this alone. So there's kind of an important element of that. And Putin needs to know as well that Europeans don't have any daylight with the United States, and so does China. But on the other part that you laid out there at the very beginning about the stresses and strains, I mean, we know there are stresses and strains. We saw the Prigozhin insurgency. And of course, Prigozhin laid it all out there. The war was a mistake. It's been going very badly up until that point, And it needs uh, to be ended or one, but of course on Russia's terms. I mean, so what Prigozhin was doing in his insurgency was laying out the, the fact that the war was a huge mistake. It had been a massive blunder. That's kind of the common view. But he was also saying that it actually has to be won and that Russia shouldn't be defeated and Russia shouldn't really have to pay for that mistake. And that's where all the stresses and strains are. If Putin can, again, convinces all through all these psychological and other operations that he's winning on a hazard one and that we should just give it up, uh, which is, of course, you know, part of the whole uh, political battlefield. And we give up before we've, um, you know, even seen whether there's a chance for turning things around militarily as we go into the new year by Ukraine. This actually saves him big time. Because the longer this goes on, as you're, I, I think, laying out there, the more disastrous it is for Putin the casualty rate, the impact on the economy. Right now, the economy actually looks pretty good. 
by all um, measures. But we saw in the call-in session that he had great concerns about inflation because they've created a war economy. They're putting all of the resources uh, into building up uh, the military and defence procurement and production sides. They're putting all of their resources out there into paying for people in the military. And this is actually pushing up um, inflation. They've taken over all of the Western companies that have left. You know, there is, you know, quite a bit of generation of the economy, but it's a very distorted economy. And over the longer term, again, you will start to see some problems. Uh, Growth cannot be driven forever by the war. In fact, Putin's biggest problem is probably the peacetime, as is often uh, the case in these instances. But again, the longer this goes on, the more distortions. And, you know, you mentioned his health. Well, there's a lot of people around him in the same age cohort who we do know have health problems. And I've heard the same things that you have, all kinds of speculation if it's thyroid, you know, some condition that's being managed, but could, you know, have some deleterious effects later. He's the wild card in the system. You know, so if something happens to his health, the whole thing gets uh, turned on on its head. And if we look back to the uh, victory day of World War II uh, commemorations of May this uh, past year, he really did not look well. He looked quite infirm. He had a blanket over his knee. He just didn't look good at all. We also know that there are other people around him who have had cancer, who've been treated in the West. You know, you get all these different messagings um, coming out of people, making it very clear that they would actually like to restore the the relationships uh, with Europe and the United States. Many of them were getting treated here, despite all of the stresses and strains in uh, the relationship. And, you know, I myself and, you know, many other colleagues are already getting little feelers being sent out to see whether um, the United States and the West are, are ready to negotiate which also suggests that Russia would like to see this ended. But again, completely on Putin's terms, no return of territory, the opportunity to put pressure on Ukraine over the longer term, and certainly no reparations. I mean, as long as this discussion goes on about taking the interest from seized Russian assets, for example, which is really, you know, ratcheted up in both the UK and in the United States and legal and other financial circles, you know, that also puts a chill on all those Russian business people and other investors and on the Kremlin itself. I mean, the Kremlin did not anticipate that we would basically inflict such high financial penalties. Otherwise, of course, they wouldn't have had so much money invested or placed in the West for safekeeping. If Putin were to get those terms or even the best part of them that you're laying out here in exchange for peace, what would be the longer term impacts there? And I'm thinking more broadly, but global security and China is obviously alliances of convenience with Iran um, to a certain point with China. I mean, how invested is China in seeing Putin succeed? And if he does succeed, what does it mean for for them and, and the broader picture globally? Yeah, well, it wouldn't really be peace. It would just be another phase. For Putin, it would be basically cementing and consolidating what he already has. And then he would try by all kinds of other means to try to undermine the situation in Ukraine as much as possible. We've already seen cyber attacks. You can be sure that things would become very difficult for Zelensky. The Ukrainians have put off their elections for uh, next year, but there would be you know, increasing pressure on uh, Zelensky and others to be held to account inside of uh, Ukraine. And we will see, already see some of the stresses and strains there. If we look at Georgia, for example, where Russia invaded in 2008, Mikhail Saakashvili, the bete noir of Putin at that time, is now in a Georgian prison hospital, you know, having been eventually ousted from power. And the current Georgian ruling party, Georgia Dream, has pulled the country closer to Russia not the population, but, you know, certainly the kind of political spectrum and, you know, changed uh, Georgia's uh, politics and its geopolitical perspectives quite dramatically. And there'd be all kinds of ways in which Russia could make mischief. The other thing as well is that Putin would present this as having defeated the West. For him, this would be a capitulation. 
because we've said we'd be there supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. And so he would say, defeated NATO, defeated the United States, defeated the Europeans. And then there's the other um, you know, dimensions of this, getting back to what you said about China. China has actually been a bit of a restraint on Russia, not necessarily on terms of the actual conventional battlefield. And President Xi is very close to Putin. And this personal relationship means a lot to him. And he certainly doesn't want to see Putin lose. And China wouldn't either, because then they'd look like, you know, they had actually backed the wrong horse. And also, there's a great deal of desire in China and elsewhere to have Russia remain as a strong global power, a kind of counterweight, you know, to the United States and counterweight to other powers, particularly as one that's uh, close and increasingly dependent on China for a variety of economic and you know, political support. But there's also uh, the constraint on the nuclear aspect on nuclear weapons. Russia was flirting with the idea, not just flirting, but considering using a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, a battlefield nuclear weapon. And they got pushback from all the nuclear powers on the UN permanent nuclear members, China, the United States, France, Britain, and then some others as well, India, for example. I mean, the world has become a much more complex place since the end of World War II. The P5 of the permanent nuclear powers on the Security Council of the UN have been joined by a host of others in India and Pakistan. Obviously, we've got North Korea going rogue on its weapons program, concerns about Iran, etc. And there would be a real risk of proliferation uh, if uh, the war is ended on uh, on Russia's terms here, because of Ukraine was pushed to give up its nuclear weapons by the United States and uh, other powers, the US and UK guaranteed alongside Russia, Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. And so I think you know, the message to the rest of the world there would be, well, you know, you're, you've got no guarantees without nuclear weapons. We're already hearing other states discuss the prospect of getting their own nuclear weapon. Countries like Finland and Sweden which had actually been opposed to nuclear weapons use joining NATO, which is, in, in effect, a, a nuclear military alliance. And of course, Japan and South Korea have been very focused on helping Russia precisely because of this. They rely on the US nuclear umbrella in the, the Asia, the Indo-Pacific region. But also, this would set an incredibly bad precedent. Japan has territorial disputes still with Russia. It has territorial disputes with China, obviously. Uh, South Korea has North Korea at its border. All the other treaty countries with the United States, we have bilateral treaties or, or countries with security arrangements, the Philippines, Vietnam, you know, et cetera, et cetera, would look at this and just wonder, well, what are the prospects? And if I get into a conflict. And India, you know, for example, would be very nervous because, I mean, so many territorial disputes also with Pakistan, but also with China uh, up in the Himalayas. You know, there's a lot riding on how this is resolved. We already see disputes between Venezuela and Guyana in um, South America. I mean, the, just the scope here for mischief as a result of a resolution. Again, Putin would not be deterred and, in fact, might be emboldened uh, by his success, no matter how bloody and costly this has been, you know, to try again sometime later. And speaking of that emboldenment, just if I could take us back, you mentioned Georgia 08. I remember Syria, the red line in 2013. You know, then, of course, Crimea 2014, entering the war in Syria 2015. I was living in Beirut when you know Hezbollah official would brag to me about how Russian special forces had helped them learn more about comms and urban warfare. You know, looking back. You know, knowing about Putin in in retrospect and his actions now, was the situation mismanaged? Was he underestimated? 
Yes, he was underestimated, Jane. And look, and I will also admit that, you know, I underestimated him in the Middle East. I mean, it's not merely my area of expertise. It's obviously one of yours. And I didn't really foresee Putin intervening, Russia intervening the way that it did in 2015 in Syria. I mean, I was certainly pretty clued up on what was likely to happen in Ukraine and, and elsewhere. And that really wasn't that much of a surprise, to be frank, because in 2008, when Russia moved into Georgia, I mean, I was in the National Intelligence Council at the time. And, you know, together with you know some of Richard's old colleagues, we'd been worrying and warning about a, a Russian um, intervention in the breakaway republics of Georgia and Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and, you know, all the pressure that the Russians were putting on uh, Georgia. We also thought that something similar would happen in Ukraine, already pressure building up on Ukraine because both Georgia and Ukraine had been given the sort of open door to NATO membership back in 2008 at the Bucharest uh, summit. And it was clear that Putin wanted to make a move, you know, against both of them to just sort of make sure that both Ukraine and Georgia uh, and all the other former Soviet republics, uh, frankly, stayed in Russia's orbit. And this all goes back to the early 1990s. There were people who were around Putin now who were then also putting pressure on the former Soviet states. It precedes all of the discussions about NATO. If you go back to the 1990s, uh, and Richard would probably remember this as well, there was all kinds of tensions and pressures between Russia and the, uh, the former Soviet states. Putin still thinks that they're breakaway states you know, that need to be brought back, maybe not all of them, but certainly some of the key territories. And in the Middle East, Right now, also, post-October 7th, I think we have to be super careful not to underestimate Russia's role and its propensity there for mischief, given the relationships with Iran, with Saudi Arabia, continuing with Syria, with uh, all of the Gulf states, all the Russian money is there right now. And, you know, we, we need to watch that one very closely. When I was travelling to Moscow, primarily after 9-11, and acting somewhat as a sort of intermediary in a message carrier. The Russians asked me on my next visit to Washington. This is when Condoleezza Rice was in the White House and the National Security Advisor. Asked me to say to the Bush administration, look, why don't you give more consideration to us? Why did you treat us as equals, at least in the attention that you give us on the world stage, because at the moment the dialogue isn't there, you're ignoring us. And they were clearly very sore at this point in time. And the response, I'm not going to say exactly who said this, but you can guess. When I delivered this message in Washington, Richard, you know, Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, has the GDP somewhere between Denmark and Italy. Why on earth should we treat Russia as a global power, as a world power? And I mean, that's an interesting observation. On the one hand, you could see it's a sort of trigger for Russia's resentment of the West, which was already running deep. And there was a period when we thought that they might cooperate with us to a greater degree. But it also indicates that under Putin's plan, there is a fundamental weakness. Russia is not a major economic power. It's in a period of severe post-imperial decline. I mean, you could say that the explanation for Putin's behavior is a sort of severe case of post-imperial anxiety. And for example, if you look at the relationship with China, it's completely uh, imbalanced now. And Russia is staggering you know, towards a relationship where it's going to be very much a junior partner. And you know, things are not happy in China either. I would argue at the moment that Xi Jinping, we're seeing peak China. 
And the idea that, you know, China's going to go on rising as a political and economic and military power, I have severe problems with that analysis. So, you know, there is this issue of Russia's being held at arm's length at a crucial period of time in international relations when they were becoming very fluid. But on the other hand, there is a fundamental weakness. And, and I mean, I won't go into the detail. You know, the lack of investment in Russia, the lousy demographics, it's a commodity-dependent economy, just, you know, when fossil fuels are beginning to go out of fashion. So, you know, there are many things that, that cause us, I think, to ask big questions about Putin's or Russia's vulnerabilities internationally. Yeah, I'm not, I, I agree with all that, but I'm going to give it a you know a bit of a twist here. You know, George W. Bush was famous for his kind of malapropisms, and one of the words that I actually love and I think ought to be now standard in the English language was misunderestimate. And uh, I always think that Russia is misunderestimated. <laughs> and in part is because all of that is true, and yet Russia has always historically been able to marshal um, a great deal of coercive power and be able to redeploy all of its assets, limited as they sometimes you know, may be, to its security apparatus and to its military. Because Russia, for most of its history, and in fact, um, one might even argue that the period of the uh, 1990s and 2000s was something of an aberration in this, has been very much focused on the power of the state and the coercive apparatus of the state, rather than on the health, wealth and prosperity of the Russian people. I mean, in fact, under the early part of Putin, you know, if he'd actually left the stage and Dmitry Medvedev, who became president, you know, briefly had stayed on there, one might be able to argue that Russians were leading and living their best possible lives uh, because of the growth of uh, the Russian economy, because of the rise in commodity prices, of course, between 2000 and 2010. I mean, the 1990s, it hit rock bottom. Uh, the country was bankrupt. Oil and gas prices were literally in the tank. And, you know, because of the, the growth of China and all the global demand, the Russian economy really ticked up in those uh, first uh, periods of Putin's presidency. He was extraordinarily lucky. Uh, but he was also very clever and careful uh, with the stewarding of uh, financial resources, paying off all of the sovereign debt uh, and the private sector debt, for example, making sure that the country was solvent again and stashing away massive rainy day funds, um, you know, big uh, sovereign wealth funds, which they're now, of course, dipping into. So that's kind of, you know, you could see that uh, turning around. And that's, um, you know, very important. They also instituted a flat tax. And, you know, in terms of the middle class, the uh, development of middle class in Russia, that's pulled along by so many people working for the Russian government itself. I mean, sort of 60% of people who are employed in Russia work for the government. So that what one way or another, that is the bureaucracy. So the more money and revenue that the government brings in on taxes on oil and gas rather than on taxes and people, you know, the more that you can actually redistribute in the system. And that's also an important element that, you know, we tend to miss. So the framing in Russia, I mean, I, I I don't want to go on in this in too much detail is is somewhat different. You know, when we look at GDP, you know, we're thinking about, you know, per capita incomes, we're thinking about how our people and our private sector perform. We don't have that overburdening state or overburdening state. People think we do, but we actually don't. But in Russia, pretty much everything is related to the state. And of course, you have these now this huge military, this conscription. People are getting paid, you know, large sums of money, you know, relatively speaking, in remote areas, you know, 
spreading again more money around as a result of uh, going to the front and compensation you know for deaths so a lot of people actually feel that they're benefiting from this one way or another but all of this is just to say that you know if the russians can marshal a lot of their resources they can project much more strength literally punch above what you would otherwise think to be their weight of GDP. And Putin knows how to do that. I mean, again, we have to remember that Putin was very proficient at judo as a young man. And, you know, the metaphor of chess and all the rest of it doesn't really quite fit it because you're always trying to turn your own weaknesses into a strength and turn the strengths of your opponents um, against uh, you. Mm -hmm. So, frankly, I've always thought that R Russia was, to use George W. Bush's wonderful term of misunderestimated um, again, and that, you know, we really didn't get the point throughout its history Russia has never been as strong and as weak or as weak as people uh, make out. Now, there are lots of problems there, but Putin is betting that he can keep this going for um, some time. He can still, you know, basically pull people into the military on the front, particularly if Ukraine gets more constrained. And he just does believe that with this psychological operation against all of us right now, these symbolic wins, he can actually start to have people in the US and in Europe start pushing for a peace negotiation. And all the way along, he's been trying to figure out how to outmaneuver. If you go back also to the early 2000s after 9-11, the period in which you were basically working with them, I mean, Russia was also bogged down over a period of time after that as well in that dreadful war in Chechnya. And what Putin wanted was yeah. a pass there. And of course, you know, it was very difficult for the US and others to give him uh, a pass in that kind of context. Putin wanted to have a trade for support for the United States in Afghanistan and elsewhere for, you know, basically allowing Russia to have a free hand in Chechnya and, and, and really also in, you know, what they were still calling the near abroad. Putin really believes very firmly in spheres of influence and he believes yeah, that, that was, Russia has a right to one. That sort of potential deal was clear way back when I was going to Moscow. And I, I mean, the war in Chechnya was very, very tough for the Russians, but they eventually came out on top, but it took them a long time. And it was brutal. If we oh, think about what's happening now in Gaza, no, I mean, the Russians was... flattened Grozny, and it was a, a population of one million people. And we think up to 250,000 people died. Yeah, yeah. Russian special forces executed an awful lot of people. That's right. Mm. And yeah. totally leveled the place in, in Grozny. And then, yeah. and then yeah. put in, you know, Ramazan Kadyrov, instead of actually living up to the commitments that they made in the Hasavyota Accords at the end of the 1990s, in which they were going to have a compromise with um, the existing Chechen leadership. And after a period of time, they just assassinated <coughs> everyone. You talk about Putin's gambles, uh, what, how he you know plays with luck and strategy and punches above his weight. Looking ahead, is it fair to say that Putin is gambling on a Trump success, uh, Trump 2.0 in the election next year? What would that mean for him? What does Putin hope for uh, U.S. politics going forward? Yeah, that's literally his Trump card. You know, there's no two ways about it. Uh, and it's also just the anticipation that uh, Trump's going to come back is something, you know, for Putin of a boon. He can play with that. He can use it as kind of a warning, you know, scare the Ukrainians with it, the Europeans, uh, the rest of the world. Putin is pretty confident, given um, his experiences with Trump in the past, that Trump will be quick to try to resolve the whole conflict and, you know, war in Ukraine in his favour. You know, obviously, Putin has had Trump's number for some time. He knows how to manipulate him. 
you know, he was being very good at the art of flattery with Trump. He sees Trump as a as an asset in in many respects because although Trump can be extraordinarily unpredictable, and you know Putin probably has to tread very carefully, in fact, not to insult him, and not to kind of cross lines that Trump you know lays for himself. Putin is, you know, pretty confident that he can, you know, stoke up the culture wars here, there and everywhere. And just with a little bit of deft use of political influence operations and propaganda, he can, you know, keep things sort of moving in his direction. It already is moving in his direction in any case. Everything that Trump surrogates and Trump himself, you know, says about NATO, about Europe and European security, about world and global affairs, about Ukraine, uh, everything that's happening on Capitol Hill. I mean, for Putin, this is just, you know, for him a sign that, again, everything is going to rapidly switch in his direction, in his favour. Is this Trumpism or is this US isolationism, given that you started off giving us a very sort of historical context for the relationship between the West and Russia, which I absolutely agreed with? But, you know, are we looking at a severe case of US isolationism or or is this a purely a Trump-related phenomenon or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both, I think, Richard. You know, and I think a lot of people, like my colleague um, Bob Kagan, you know, here at Brookings, you know, have been writing very cogently, you know, about this, for example. I mean, we know that the United States stepped away, you know, um, in more recent history from uh, the League of Nations after, you know, setting this up at the end of World War One. It was forced back into action because of, of the implications of all of this. We've got, you know, even earlier historical examples. We've got just this streak uh, ever since the, the founding of the Republic of a desire to pull away from uh, world affairs and then getting pulled back when it becomes evident that the, the United States sitting things out is actually very detrimental for U.S. interests. Now, this time around, however, making the case that um, it's going to be detrimental for U.S. interests is very difficult because of the nature of Trump himself and Trumpism. This is very much personally focused. It's capricious. It's not really kind of rooted in any particular ideology. And it's really, you know, very much uh, centered around Trump himself, although I think we can also see that there are many other acolytes and uh, Trump wannabes who are out there, you know, also jumping on the same bandwagon here. Uh, Because obviously in the United States, there's a lot of domestic concerns, just as there are uh, in every other country uh, writ large. And I think, you know, it would be you know, fair to say that every country at the moment, with a few notable exceptions, is having some kind of uh, domestic crisis and wondering how much they should be engaged in global affairs, you know, given all of the major demographic and uh, technological and uh, climate uh, changes and the impacts that they're having on the home front. Yeah, we're just going to have to see how this plays out, sadly. Trump is a wild card, literally, but so is Vladimir Putin. Um, he's also a kind of a, maybe he's the joker in the, the Russian system, not just uh, the, the Trump card. Because just getting back to what you said, um, if something happens to Putin's health, uh, and his well-being, if he really takes a turn for the worse, all bets are off in Russia about what really happens next. It can go in all kinds of different directions. If something happens to the health of, of Donald Trump and even um, uh, of Joe Biden, of course, that's everyone's fixated on this, the system is more robust here. And it's certainly in other countries as well. That's not the case in Russia at this particular it's point. It's incredibly brittle in Russia. Exactly. There is no, you know, there, there's no mechanism for change. It's been a fantastic discussion. And yeah, and thank I'm you for having really, me. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's Absolutely a real pleasure, wonderful. Jane and Richard. Thank you so much. It's so interesting to me what 
Dr. Hill was saying really about the psychological impact that Putin is approaching this from near PSYOPs sort of perspective. I mean, is this something that we should have predicted that he would, I mean, this is more than spin, how Putin is somehow presenting this war as a victory? It is something more than spin. And I think it's fundamental to the way that the Russians approach the situation that they've created. And and, uh, I, I suppose I would put it very briefly by saying that we're in a state of grey warfare with Russia as far as the Russians are concerned, and they will bring to bear all their psyops, you know, information warfare techniques in which they're very sophisticated, they're very practiced, and of course it's much easier to operate that sort of capability in an autocratic state where you can bend any aspect of the media to your will and where you know, you have your irons in the fire outside Russia in other people's systems, and you can exploit those mercilessly. And that's exactly what the Russians are doing now. And you can bet your bottom dollar that, you know, somewhere in the SVR, there's a unit, somewhere in the GRU, there's a unit, you know, which is thinking very hard about what their moves will be. And uh, I mean, there was a brief reference to Guyana and the Venezuelan claim on Guyana. If you look at that in close detail, and some friends of mine have just done a big analysis of it, the Russians have been pushing that issue with the Venezuelans for 18 months. And the trail is very clear to be seen in Russian media and South American media, which is sympathetic to Russia. And it's a classic example, I think, of Putin opening another front, which, um, you know, will be difficult for the United States to handle because obviously Guyana's security is going to be largely an American issue. Mm. And I think we haven't got time now, but you can list 15 or 20 examples of that type of activity. And we tend not to make the connections in the West at a governmental level. And a friend of mine recently was at a briefing in in London with a defense intelligence staff. He's an academic. I'm being a little indiscreet here, but I think I can be. And I asked a, a question about Russian strategy and the links between these crises. You know, we're all beginning to use the word polycrisis. Mm-hmm. And there's no question that there, in the mind of many analysts, many experts, that there are quite extraordinary linkages to be made. And I think, you know, in the West at governmental level, there's a reluctance to jump to these conclusions because it looks too conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. But in fact, uh, I think that, you know, we are, as it were, on the receiving end of something very, very serious, very carefully thought through and very strategic from the Russian point of view. We have to respond and we're not well equipped to respond. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.